it just seems to me that wherever Paul and Barnabas went, they just always seemed to be getting themselves into trouble. And that's pretty much the point of all of today's reading. When you're being obedient to God, expect persecution. Especially when that obedience is obedience to the call to mission, expect trouble. Paul and Barnabas said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's almost like they're saying, if you're not encountering trouble, why not? Because if we're being obedient to God and calling a godless world to turn to God, well, generally they're not going to be pretty, not very happy with that. And they'll tend to criticise you and they'll tend to pick on you. So if you're not encountering trouble, why not? Last week, Aaron preached for us and and he's preached on the second half of Acts chapter 13 and it ended in the most peculiar fashion. Not Aaron's sermon, that was fine. Uh, The Bible reading finished in the most peculiar fashion. The word of the Lord was spreading out the throughout the whole region. But the Jews, being jealous of what was happening, stirred up the prominent people, both men and women, and they run them out of town. Now, they run out of the town of Antioch. Now, I'm just going to refresh your mind. As Aaron shared with us last week, in this section of Acts, there's two different Antiochs that we're talking about. Now, that makes it confusing. Just like there being two different St. George's in Australia, it gets a little confusing sometimes. Well, there's two different Antiochs. One Antioch was in Syria, and that's where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from. That was their home church that sent them out on this mission. But they went to this other Antioch in Poseidia. And it was this Antioch in Poseidia that they run out of town. And um, when they left Antioch, when they had to flee Antioch, they didn't just get out of the city, they fled the whole region. Now, that would be like a couple of us going on mission into Roma, because Roma's a particularly godless place. You've noticed that? Yep. And so we go to Roma, a couple of us, and we're there, and we're, we're preaching the gospel, and of course we get run out of town, because Roma's like that. And they run us out of town, and then, so what do we do? We start heading west, but we don't stop in Mitchell because that's still in the same shire, still in Maranoa Shire. We head all the way to Charleville in the Merway Shire. And so that's pretty much what these guys did. As they left, they shook the dust off their feet against them. And now here's the peculiar bit. And they're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. You're getting run out of town. Shaking your dust off your feet against that town and going, yeah, praise God, this is just amazing. Um, why? Why were they praising God? Well, even though they were getting run out of town, there were already people there in that town who had given their lives to the Lord. And that shaking the dust off their feet, that didn't mean they weren't coming back because they actually do go back there. So what did it mean, that shaking the dust off their feet? We don't like to fail, do we? I don't like to fail. Is anyone else here that doesn't like to fail? Or does he not not mind it? Uh, None of us like to fail. But here's an important lesson for us. There comes a time, and it's often sooner than what a lot of us think, when the right thing to do is to give up flogging a dead horse and move on to where the gospel may be better received. Jesus gave us a direction that we rarely take seriously. 
In Mark chapter 6, verse 11, he said, If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. You know, people need to realise and understand that when they reject the word of the Lord, a word that would bring them life, they need to know the consequences of what they're doing. They need to know that there are consequences to that rejection. They need to know that, hey, we are servants of the king and we've come here on the king's business and we've done our bit. We've discharged our duty. We've come as God's representatives. We've shared with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we have done that, and if we've done the best to to share our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, it's not our fault when people reject Jesus. But it is our responsibility to tell them the gospel in the first place. You know, when somebody hears the gospel... When we hear the gospel, when we hear the word of God, we cannot remain the same. Every time you hear somebody preach the word of God, every time you read the Bible, you cannot remain the same. You'll either be set free and, and God will do a work in your heart as you, re, as you turn to God and as you respond to God in the way that God's talking to you at that time, or your heart will just be a little bit harder against him. And so Paul and Barnabas, when they got run out of that town, they didn't just go, oh, goodness, we're such failures. There isn't any use. God God obviously isn't with us. We might as well pack up now and head back to our Antioch, the real Antioch. Um, They didn't say any of that. Because they knew that their duty was to be obedient to God and to preach the gospel. And when people did turn to God, well, that was magnificent. That's a reason to give God glory And likewise, when people rejected God and they were even thrown out of town in disgrace, well, they could continue to hold their heads high knowing that they were servants of the king and that they had been on the king's mission and that they would continue to go in the king's mission. And they could do it with joy because they knew that there was another opportunity to share the gospel of Christ just in the next shire. And so they headed off to Iconium. And as was their usual practice, first of all, they went to the local Jewish synagogue and we're told that there they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I wish I could speak in that way. Do you wish you could speak in that way? I don't know what way that is. I try and try and try to to convince people of the the word of God and, and to share with them. But here, in this place, a great many people believed. I actually think it's got more to do with what God's doing than what we do. All we do is we just speak what we know about the gospel. And God does the rest. Um, But then God backed the message up with signs and wonders. But then something happened. The city became divided. I suppose before they got there, everything was just going along as normal. But then they got there, Paul and Barnabas, they turned up and they preached the gospel. A whole bunch of people turned their hearts to Jesus and believed. But then the town gets divided. 
What's going on? I mean, isn't Christianity supposed to bring peace to a place? Well, what do you think? Why the division? Are you aware that that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against a mother, and a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, for us who, you know, let's face it, most of us think pretty highly of family, and some of us might almost idolise families and the family unit. And we hear these words of Jesus talking about coming to make a division between families. What does it mean? What on earth are you talking about, Jesus? Let me tell you what he's talking about. Wherever the word of God is preached... And some turn to Jesus and others do not. In that place, those people will be divided. You can count on it. There is no peace between children of God and children of the devil. There is no commonality between light and darkness. The values of the world are very different to the values of the kingdom of God. And when Paul and Barnabas preached the good news of Jesus Christ, they were calling all of the people of that town to a radical change in their thinking about God. And this is the key to it. For both the Jews and the heathens to be born again as Christians would require for them to make a radical change in their attitude toward God. A change in what they believed about God, a change in their relationship with God. And it's exactly the same for us in our society today. To be born again in Australia today requires a radical change in your thinking about God. And to those who become disciples of Jesus, well, this radical change makes a lot of sense. Because we just know in our hearts that it's true, this is right, this this is our destiny, this is where God has been leading us to all these years. This is where we belong. This is now who we are. We are in Christ. But those who do not believe will become incensed by the whole thing. Romans chapter 12 verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now it's not very often in the Bible that you read, If possible, do this. Usually it just says, do this, or be this, or think this, or believe this. But here it's saying, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But you know what? Often it's not possible. Sometimes it's not up to us. And when Christ is preached and when sin is condemned, the world will take great offence at the word of God. And Christians will be ridiculed, they will be persecuted, and they will be demonised for holding up God's way. They'll be ridiculed for upholding God's standard of right and wrong, just and unjust, moral and immoral, sin and righteousness, freedom and bondage. 
You see, it is God's law by which we will be judged, not the standards that I set for myself and not the standards that our community, our nation, sets for its citizens. I'll say it again. It is God's law by which we will be judged, not our standards and not the standards of our nation. You see, these things change, whereas God's law does not. And that's very deeply offensive to a world who want to determine their own fate, their own destiny, their own morality. A week or so ago, a headline item on the news said, a popular burger chain has apologised for allowing diners in Brisbane to donate to an anti-abortion group. Did anyone hear that come up on the news? It was there for one news cycle. You see, after you have, it, have your meal, you're given a little token to place in a, in a, in a jar. There's, one of the, there's three different jars there, three different choices of three different community groups that you can choose to support. And, of course, at the end of the month or week or whatever it is, they look at which jar has the most tokens in it and they get the biggest donation from Gould Burgers. Um, Robin and I actually went to one of the Gould Burgers places. It was actually a pretty good feed, wasn't it, Robin? Uh, uh, only a couple of months ago. Um, and then, but of course, the one that has less gets a smaller donation, and the one that has fewer gets an even smaller donation. But apparently, at one of their restaurants, a local community group who stand against the state-sanctioned killing of unborn babies were one of the three choices for that month. And some people were deeply offended by this, and so they made comments on Twitter and and Facebook and all of those other things that I have no idea how they work. And so the upper level management rings up the local store manager and says, get that jar out of there straight away. We can't be seen to be having anything to do with this. And then the um, head of the franchise um, went on to the wireless and basically apologised um, they were apologising for allowing the people of Brisbane to support that group. And basically what they said was, we're all for freedom of choice. Of course, they're talking about choice whether we kill our babies or not, not about choice whether we put a token in a jar or not, because they couldn't have that choice. God's law is deeply offensive to a world who have no trouble at all in justifying themselves. Think about the current marriage issue. The current media-driven debate, it just seems to go on and on and on and on and I'm tired about hearing it. Every news item, it's there again. Of course, they call it marriage equality. But anyone who dares to speak out with a different opinion is labelled as a bigot. Have you heard any Christians speaking out on the media about it lately? Yes or no? I actually have. But it seems that they've discovered over time that there's no use at all in focusing on issues of morality or sin or God's word or right and wrong because they just get cut down. Do you know what they talk about now? 
The issue that they're pushing out now, the prominent Christians in the media who stand against same-sex marriage have taken up the argument of a child's right to both a mother and a father. And of course that's a good argument, but it's an argument that's lost already because we're already a society who have plenty of orphans, plenty of single-parent families in our community. And it's, it's not an argument that they will win. But even arguing from that point of view, the media just gives them an absolute hammering and and it belittles them. The interview that I heard a week or so ago was when Lyle Shelton from the Australian Christian Lobby was interviewed by the ABC's Fran Kelly. And the bias of her interview, I, I just felt, was an embarrassment to journalism. She obviously had a point of view very different to this fellow and she just caned him. It's deeply offensive, God's word. But let's bring it to an even more personal level. The gospel itself has always been and continues to be deeply offensive because the key message is you're not good enough. True? I'm not good enough. You're not good enough. None of us are good enough to get to heaven. We all need a saviour. I need a saviour. You need a saviour. Our children need a saviour. Our next door neighbour needs a saviour. We are all sinners who deserve death. I talked to an elderly gentleman not so long ago and I I asked him if he prayed. And his response was, to me, prayer seems a lot like begging. And begging is something that I will not do. And you know what? In that statement, he has nailed the offence of the gospel. Somebody once described evangelism as one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. We can only come to God as beggars. We are beggars before God. Let's face it, we've got nothing to offer God. What do I have that God needs? nothing. And until we understand this, we don't understand the gospel. I cannot be good enough to be saved and neither can you. And that's why the gospel message is so wonderful. It it tells us about a God who loves us so much that he died for us even while we were still sinners. It tells us about a God who loves us so much that he seeks us. He's like the shepherd who goes out and looks for that one lost sheep. But the offence has always been this call to radical change in our understanding about God. This notion of this big fella up in the sky who's, who's going to reward me in the next life because I've been such a marvellous example of his creation here, uh, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a nonsense. The gospel of God is about the God who died to save us from our absolutely hopeless predicament of death and hell. And until I swallow my pride and until I accept that and change my thinking about God, I cannot be saved because this is a radical call to a change in my thinking about God. No wonder it's not popular. You're telling me I'm not good enough? 
You think I'm not good enough. You think I'm as bad as old mate down, down the road there. And, and you think that dirty, rotten sinner, if he turns to Jesus, he'll get to heaven and I won't. Well, blow you. That's the offence of the gospel. We better move on. The trouble that arose in this town was stirred up by the Jews who didn't believe. Some of them believed, some of them didn't. And Paul and Barnabas stayed for a long time, but when it got too dangerous for them, they had to flee. And so they headed off to Lystra, I'm going to call it. Uh, but there, and there is a place that they healed the crippled man. And when they healed this crippled man, the people thought they were gods. Barnabas, they said, oh, you're Zeus. And Paul, you must be Hermes because you're the one who does all the speaking. And then the local chief priest of Zeus turns up with a bullock, all nicely decorated, ready to sacrifice to these two fellas. Now, it was a superstitious response of the heathens drummed up by the local priest wanting to get in on the act. But, but why did they misunderstand the message? They'd done the same thing as anywhere else. They'd come into this place, they'd preach the gospel, they'd healed fella. Why did they misunderstand the gospel? I'm going to give you three reasons. Firstly, it came from their culture. There's an ancient legend that was well known in this region and according to the legend, Zeus and Hermes, two gods, once came to the region disguised as mortals looking for a place to stay. And they went door to door, knocking on doors of thousands of homes and not one of them took them in. Not one of them were hospitable. Finally, at a humble cottage of straw and reeds, an elderly couple welcomed them in and fed them. In appreciation, the gods transformed the cottage into a temple with a golden roof and marble columns and they appointed the couple as priest and priestess of the temple who instead of dying became an oak and a linden tree and everybody else who turned them away, well, their houses were turned to rubble. That's the ancient legend. And of course, it was pretty clear these people didn't want to get caught out again. If somebody happened to come you know, as gods in disguise, we didn't want to miss out again, do we? And so because of this ingrained culture and religion, they looked at these men as gods and misunderstood the gospel. And, you know, in Australia today, our culture is something that stops many from understanding the gospel. We have a culture of defying authority. We have a culture of doing things our own way. We have a culture that wrongly understands Christianity as a be a good person and you'll be right, religion. And so our culture prevents many from properly understanding the gospel. Secondly, they misunderstood the gospel because of the natural human tendency to worship a leader. Some people get really caught up in glorifying the messenger. I heard somebody once say the three big temptations for ministers are the gold, the girls and the glory. You've heard that before? Yep, that's pretty much what gets ministers trapped up. Um, so for some ministers, they're in it for the money. Uh, yeah, not going so good at Bush Disciples getting rich. Um, some of them, they're in it. Um, when you're sharing with, some of them are tempted by women. When you're sharing pastorally with someone, if you don't put in very clear and firm boundaries into place, 
Christian leaders can get themselves into all sorts of troubles no matter how good their intentions. And then there's the glory where Christian leaders delight in recognition and position and success. Yeah, during my time in St George, I've had a number of people, usually people from within the community, uh, who tell me how great certain priests and pastors have been in the past. And they tell me about these great fellows who have been here. And, um, you know, I've heard, oh, so-and-so, so he was the best minister that's ever come to town because he went to Rotary. Uh, right, okay. Well, this other minister, he was fantastic because we could catch up with him at the pub every night. He'd have a beer with us, or two, or three, or five, or six. Right. Uh, there's this other priest who, who was really great because he used to settle things with his fists and he used to have a blue with people down the street if they were getting, doing the wrong thing. I'm serious. This is what people have said to me about why these guys were so good in their opinion. This other one, he's fantastic because he's just a great musician or so-and-so was really marvellous because, gee, the church just really grew while they were here. And, and of course, the admiration for a leader can become almost a cult-like following when we start talking about the internationally renowned speakers or worship leaders or singers or whatever. People have a tendency to worship the messenger instead of the God who sent them. Thank God I'm too ordinary for any of you guys to worship me. (laughs) Thirdly, We humans have a tendency to syncretism. Do you know what that word means, syncretism? When you're talking about Christianity, it's when you try to Christianise where you're at. I want to stay the same, but I'll just Christianise myself and continue the way that I am. So if you think about Christian syncretism at a political level, you can think of medieval kings who would declare a holy war. Now, don't think for a minute that holy wars are a brand new creation of the Muslims. They've been around for thousands of years as people have, political leaders have gone out in the name of Christ, uh, such as the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, but if we look at it as a modern phenomenon today, syncretism, even today a lot of Christians syncretize. I'm not sure if that's a word. I know syncretism is, so I'm assuming syncretize is. Um, prosperity theology is a good example of that. It's basically, I want to keep my selfish lifestyle and I'm just going to Christianize that. Or New Age practices where people just want to bring in, you know, keep all of their, their, their Eastern mysticism and whatnot and just shake it up with a little bit of Christianity. We just Christianize it. So all of these things can be barriers that prevent us from understanding the gospel. Let's come back to Paul and Barnabas. When they realised what was happening and that the people were worshipping them and they were about to sacrifice this bullet to them, imagine how they must have felt. It was like, no, 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 we're just men. You have to turn from your old ways. This is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, God, he's put up with you for long enough, but you now need to know the God who is the living God. But even so, they could hardly restrain them from doing it. 
But then, at this point, the troublemakers from the other towns roll into this town. Right? So they didn't stay in, in Roma, they headed all the way to Charleville, if you know what I'm saying. And they stirred up trouble for them there. And Paul is stoned and left for dead. Now, I, I just find this incredible. These guys rock into town, they heal this fella, they, they tell the gospel, and they, ah, oh, we worship you, you're gods, you're gods. No, we're not gods, we're not gods. Oh, we'll kill you then. There's a pretty fast turnaround here, isn't there? Now, I don't know if this is a miracle of God or not, but it seems to me like it probably is. Paul survived a stoning. Do you know what a stoning is? It's basically, you would normally drag someone out of town and start hurling stones at them until they're dead. And you sort of hopeful that there's going to be somebody merciful there that'll pick up a great big boulder and drop it on your head. Because uh, otherwise it just goes on and on and on until you're dead. But here it must have, they obviously couldn't wait until they got them out of town because they'd actually took place in town. They were pretty anxious to stone these fellows and then when they thought they were dead, they drug them out of town and left them for dead. But when the disciples gathered around Paul, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. No sick days for Paul. <laughs> Straight back into it, eh? Mate. And in Derby they preached the gospel and many people became disciples. And that was the end of their missionary journey. Right? Wrong. See, at this point, all they would have had to do was make a beeline straight for their home and they would have been sorely in need of a rest after all of the <laughs> preaching and all of the persecutions and the stonings and whatnot. But no, they didn't go home. Their work wasn't finished. They had made converts in all these different places, but that wasn't the end of their work. Now it was time for them to go back and to encourage them in the ways of discipleship. These new Christians had been called to a radical change in their understanding about God, and they'd received that and understood it, and now they needed some further encouragement. And we all do, don't we? Once you become a Christian, that's not where it all ends for you, is it? You continually need encouragement. I know I do. And so Paul and Barnabas went back to all of the places that they'd already been kicked out of. Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. And one of the key things that they had to teach the disciples of Jesus is don't be discouraged when trouble comes because the the path to the kingdom of God is a path that will lead you right through this area of tribulation. And we've gone far enough and we're going to leave it at that for today. Next week, we're going to actually hear what Paul says to these new Christians. This, this advice that he gives them, these new Christians and these new churches. Now, I think that's something that's important for us to hear as well.